In nature, a wildfire is one of the most devastating natural forces. It burns hot and fast and leaves little behind but ash and char. Or so it seems. Very soon after the fire passes through the forest, life returns. Shrubs and weeds that clog the forest floor have burned away, leaving space for new trees, grasses, and flowers to emerge and flourish. Habitats are created, bringing new insects, birds, reptiles, and mammals. A cancer diagnosis can feel like a wildfire, our bodies becoming this new, fire-clarified landscape. For some, cancer changes utterly everything. For others, cancer brings greater clarity and purpose. And some of us are still searching for what life after a cancer diagnosis will look like. Welcome to The Burn. We are exploring stories of life and transformation following a breast cancer diagnosis. I'm April Stearns, the founder and editor of Wildfire Magazine and the host of this podcast. Today, we are bringing you part two of our special extra big extra juicy, extra long, now two-parter, in honor of our one-year anniversary of The Burn. And joining me again today is my teammate and production assistant, Monica Haro. Welcome to The Burn, Monica. Hi, April. Thanks. Yeah. So like I said, this is a part two. So if you haven't yet heard part one, you'll want to pause here and go back and listen to the first part. What we are doing is instead of our regular format of hearing one story, instead we're revisiting some of our favorite episodes and guests from the past year of The Burn in order to inspire you to maybe write your stories, but more than anything, to make you know that you're not alone in this community, this breast cancer community. So we have organized our special, our two-part special, around what we are calling hard truths of being diagnosed young. So we have divided it into six truths. And in our previous episode, we went into the first two. We went into motherhood, fertility and infertility, as well as mental health. So again, pop back over there if you haven't heard that yet, because we're going to jump in and continue on with our next truths. Monica. I want to give you a little airtime here too and just ask you a quick question how it's going for you that we're doing this special. I love it. I feel so honored and proud to have worked on this podcast the last year. It's really given me a a lot of joy and everybody's so excited to be on and share their truths and they're always so, um, you know, on the back end, it's always so nice when they're excited to be invited on and they can't wait to read their story. So. I think I love it's that. cool that yeah. we get to honor, like, that's a that's a big accomplishment for you. Congratulations on one year of the burn. <laughs> you did it. Yes, thank you. Well, and in preparation, you know, pulling back the curtain a little bit, in preparation for this special, you and I went through and talked about every single episode that we have done, which, and we're in our 50s now. Yeah. I, I say, yeah. <laughs> 50 episodes in. <laughs> Almost yes. 60. <laughs> we, have, exactly. we have some not re- that are still to be released. Yeah. Right. And so that's a lot. I mean, and, and this project grew out of 38 issues now in the archives mm-hmm. and not wanting any of those stories to get forgotten or those voices to get forgotten. Just, you know, whether it's because someone has passed away or just because that's a lot of issues for someone to dig through. So 
we started creating this podcast and then now we have 50 episodes, 50 plus episodes in our digital archives here. And so it's this constant question of how do we keep those stories alive? And one of those ways is that you and I are discussing this here on this on this special. But I guess part of the reason I'm saying that is that we obviously couldn't play you our favorite moments from all of those episodes. And we had favorite moments, favorite yeah. quotes. You know, each one of them stirred so many talking points. So we've boiled it down to our six truths of being diagnosed young in breast cancer. But there's tons. There's so many truths out there. So that many. We've just boiled it down, right? Yes. yes. So the next one we want to talk about, this is truth number four. And this is the struggle to find your place in the community. And I, I'm kind of curious, Monica, if you had this struggle, but I'll set it up to say that the breast cancer community is vast and there are lots of different types of people living now in this space. There's lots of different types of breast cancer. So some people are going to identify with people who have the same diagnosis as them, maybe, you know, triple negative or metastatic. Some people are going to identify with people who have a shared station in life, you know, the, the ones who are parenting littles right now as they're going through cancer. Then there might be some who identify more with others who are in menopause. And, you know, you find your little mm -hmm. spot. Monica, did you find your your sense of community? I absolutely did. And I had somebody who is my elder, my disease, help me find that or, or solidify that. And my spot is as a helper. I serve the community by doing intakes for support group or, as you know, I'm a community guide for a breast cancer support app. I'm a, I'm a, I hold space for people. I'm a space holder. <laughs> That's where I found kind of kind of my my role. I wasn't somebody who was going to be, you know, an advocate on social media um, or anything like that. But um, I did. I found my I found my space doing that. And I have done some advocacy, too. As you know, you've, you've seen I did an art installation of my breast cancer experience. But that was also a place where I held space. I got to meet people and hear what they had to say and let them ask ask me questions. So I, some kind of, I don't know what you call it, some kind of helper, space holder. <laughs> no, I really like that. How long would you say it took for you to kind of find that, that that was your space and your your role in the community? I I kind of figured it out while I was finishing active treatment because I wanted to tattoo nip realistic nipples for breast cancer patients. I wanted to help people to feel better, I guess, because mm -hmm. I wasn't feeling good, but I could try and help somebody else feel better. And then that would make me feel better. Like, you know, it's a, it's a give and take. <laughs> so that's when it kind of started. And then when I began um, serving on um, with Bay Area Young Survivors on the board on the new member intake committee, that's when I really found my place. I was like, oh, I can I can hold space for people. I can hear your story. I can take this in and ease you into a community. So mm -hmm. I like that. For me, I think it took it took about well, it took four years till I launched the magazine after my own diagnosis. And before that, I it wasn't really a question of where my place was in the community because I didn't even know I had a community. It took Same. me a really long time, yeah, to find others who were diagnosed young as well. And then 
further questions about like, okay, do I want to stay in this community? You know, what is my identity now as someone who's experienced cancer? So I want to talk about our next, our clip that, that we chose to kind of talk about this struggle to find your place in community. And this comes to us from Lori Ratliff. Lori was diagnosed at 34 and she has been living with metastatic breast cancer for more than 20 years now. But she didn't find her community right away. In fact, it took her quite a long time. Mm -hmm. So we're going to play a clip from episode 10. Where do you go when you don't belong anywhere? The place where I finally feel like I belong is not a place I would have ever imagined. It's a community centered on the way I have existed since the beginning of my treatment. Because while I was disconnected from social media groups, a community formed around the absence of a thing. I found a connection for something I don't have. Who would have thought that not having breasts would ignite a sense of community? To me, something so basic to my existence, so intrinsic to this disease for so long, has become unusual. It has become a movement. It has become a community. Flat has its own identity now. I'm a flatty, and I belong here. Mm. I just love that. I, I love it too because, you know, earlier in her essay, we didn't play this part, but she talks about feeling like such an outsider. So it was a real, a real journey of transformation to finding her place. How's that hitting for you? Yes, I particularly love Lori's story and I love her current advocacy on TikTok and the grace with which she advocates on social media as well. And yeah, her road to finding her her spot is, is incredible. She talks about how like she's, I think her social media handles statistical oddity because she's been living with NBC for so long. And so she didn't feel she felt it fell in with that community 100%. She didn't feel, you know, um, she was no longer in a place of maybe, you know, wanting to be a mother or like on that very young end or navigating dating or things like that. So she's got a good story. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, and it's really interesting, too, because I do encounter people like Lori who are maybe not describing themselves as young per se or young the way that AYA is defined, you mm -hmm. know, for for cancer, but they were still diagnosed within that marker. And so one of the things I've always felt is important with, with wildfire is that you can't age out. You cannot age out. Right. You'll always have been the age you were at, at that initial diagnosis. You will always know what it was like to be diagnosed. You will at always that know what it's like. And I think that's why it's cool too, that Lori still is very visible. Like Right. She hasn't forgotten what it's like to be young. I think that what I want to say about, about that is that it takes time to sometimes find what aspect of the community resonates strong for you. And for some people, it might not be the young breast cancer community. It might not have anything to do with the young breast cancer community. It might not have anything to do with cancer. And that's okay, too. Like, everyone needs to find their place. Mm -hmm. And also to feel to feel okay in that exploration and that just because you maybe carry 
like Lori, say you carry a metastatic diagnosis, if you don't feel at home with others who are just now being diagnosed because you were diagnosed a while ago, then that's okay. You know, you don't have to wear all all the signifiers. Yeah. And I I think what's cool too is that Lori is helping other people find their place with her visibility as identifying as a, a flat advocate. Eight years ago when I you know, got my ticket to cancer land. I didn't see a whole lot like of different kinds of groups you could find your place with. And now you can, you can find your place mm-hmm. with quite, a, quite a, quite a few different ways or make your own way. Watching the others make their own way. You can find your own thing. All right. Well, that sets us up perfectly for getting into our next truths. Our next truths are related to the physicalness of this diagnosis and this body awareness that we develop for better or for worse. I'm so glad we're going to be talking about body wars. Um, What's body image things been like for you, April? I know that you don't identify as flat, full flat, half flat. What do you call yourself? Uh, I love this question, Monica, but we're going to leave everyone on a slight cliffhanger while I think about my answer to that. And we'll take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll get into the body stuff. Hi, my name is Jenny Burkholder. I live in Elkins Park, Pennsylvania, right outside of Philadelphia. In 2012, I was diagnosed with stage 2B breast cancer. I was 40 years old. At 48, I was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. I recently attended a free wildfire pop-up writing workshop for the young metastatic community. The workshop offered me an opportunity to connect with other women with metastatic breast cancer, be inspired by the writing prompts, and hear other women's beautiful and heartfelt words. All right. Thank you so much for the love, Jenny. Welcome back to our anniversary special, Monica. You were just asking me a question right before we broke. Do you mind asking me again? Yeah. um, You know, Lori identifies as full flat, and I know that you are half flat. What do you call yourself? And how did you get there? I love that. Lately, I've been calling myself a uni, which, you know, language is such an interesting thing. And I think it's really important. And I haven't necessarily found a moniker for living half flat that I love, but I, for now, call myself a uni. And I feel a lot of community among the women that are living asymmetrically. So Mm. people who have had a unilateral mastectomy and either chose to go flat from the start, which is aesthetic flat closure, or lost an implant or, you know, had an infection, something happened that has caused them to be asymmetric. And it's a corner of the breast cancer community that I didn't expect to to need. But whenever I see online or out in the world, someone else living half flat, it I know I'm home. It makes me feel really good. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for asking that. You know, we're actually headed into our truth number five, which is body related. We called it body wars. And it's a little different from, I didn't necessarily feel at war with my body in my decision to go half flat. But this truth, resonates for me because when I was diagnosed, I felt at war with my body and it brought to the surface all of the feelings about 
breasts, about curves, about all of all of the body stuff that I had been feeling since puberty all came back for me and and was right at the forefront. Do, does that resonate for you as well, Monica? Yeah, I, I had to get a double mastectomy and I thought, well, <laughs> naively, well, at least, you know, I'll get some kind of new breasts, won't have, you know, saggy mom boobs or you're hoping for an improvement. I know. And it, I think we... We kind of feel like maybe we're owed it. You know, if mm-hmm. I have to go through cancer, I have to go through cancer so young, at least, you know, maybe I get something out of it. It's a little different from the people who like to say, at least you get a, a boob job, you yeah. know, or something like that. Or at least you get a free boob job, I think yeah. is the phrase. And it's like it's a, different, right? a self-soothing bargaining thing you go through <laughs> with yourself. You know? Exactly. Like you think, exactly. Did you think you were going to lose a bunch of weight when you went on chemo? <laughs> totally. Me totally. Too. Doesn't yes. happen. <laughs> no. Well, let's go ahead and and hear from our next guest on that because she writes about that very thing so eloquently. So Madison Hager was our guest back on episode 36. This is the Cancer Breaks Us in Ways That Are Familiar episode. And Madison was 29 when her cancer came along. It was stage two, hormone positive, ductal carcinoma. And she also carried the ATM gene mutation. So let's hear what she has to say. You can't imagine how disappointed I was to learn that most breast cancer patients don't lose weight during the course of their treatment. When the oncologist gravely delivered the news that my breast cancer was more advanced than they initially thought and would require chemotherapy after all, I was weirdly elated. I thought, great, not being able to eat will be a plus and I'll finally arrive at the skinny body I truly deserve and even though I'll have cancer, I will be beautiful and thin and no one will ever be mad at me again because I will be skinny and also have a life-threatening illness. This could really work in my favor. Oh, Madison. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because it's true, right? Like these societal pressures for how we look even in cancer. Yeah, and nobody tells you that with chemo or hormone therapy, you're going to gain weight. <laughs> and you don't yeah. want to gain more weight because any extra weight you have that you can get off is only going to help you in the long run with hopefully avoiding a cancer reoccurrence or slow down a progression. Mm-hmm. They don't strangely tell you about the steroids, right? I don't remember Mm -hmm. that ever coming up. (laughs) No, I just remember all the ice cream and bowls of cereal at midnight that I was craving on steroids, so. (laughs) Right? Well, and it's interesting, too, because one of the things about, you know, this hard truth of the body wars, for me, I felt really distrustful of my body. I felt like I couldn't I I don't know that I ever had control of it, but cancer really made me feel like my body was not something that I had a say in what it was going to do. And that for me was heartbreaking because I found my lump while breastfeeding and breastfeeding and pregnancy for me felt like I finally had a an answer to what my body's purpose was. And so right on the heels of that to have it grow a stage 3 cancer felt I, I'm I'm struggling to find words for it because it was such it was such a mind fuck. It's That's a all mind it was. Fuck. It was a yes. mind fuck. Yeah. Total mind. Right? Fuck. And and yeah. then to like share that body with somebody else. 
you know? Mm-hmm. That that's a mind fuck. <laughs> it is. It is. Well, we'll get to that too. But before we get there, I want to play another clip from someone who understands this betrayal aspect too. And this mm. feeling of kind of, you know, maybe just flipping those double birds right back at your body if this is what it's going to do. So this is Aaron Weiss. And Aaron has been on the burn with us twice. But this particular story was her first one. And this is called Feeling Good as Hell. And this is about her diagnosis of de novo metastatic breast cancer following her very first mammogram at 42. This is what she had to say. I then went to a university-affiliated research hospital and got on an appropriate treatment plan for de novo metastatic breast cancer, or MBC. And suddenly I was better. I was still dying, but not now, not visibly so. And all the outreach and the meal trains and the care packages and the pink ribbon stuff stopped. And I was left with a body that had betrayed me, that I didn't recognize in the mirror, that I hated. I wanted to destroy myself. I wanted to feel nothing and something all at the same time. I needed to turn off the pain, fear, anxiety, and anguish that came from facing my own very real mortality. And I wanted to feel something anything but those feelings. In the beginning, I chose to punish myself. This body betrayed me. I would destroy it. I drank excessively. I would pass out on the sofa with a glass of wine in my hand and wake up to my son tapping me awake at five, telling me to go to bed. I stayed up until all hours. I either didn't eat or ate too much, a loose version of restricting and binging that I had grown out of in college. I stopped talking to my husband because I couldn't handle the realities we were facing. We discussed grocery lists and logistics, and I turned inward even more. I did not recognize the person I saw in the mirror. I hated her with her weird hair and fat, round, prednisone-bloated face and acne from menopause. Why put on makeup? You have no eyelashes. Why get dressed? You look awful anyway. I wallowed in my self-pity for a long time. Mm-hmm. That's powerful stuff. And I, mm-hmm. I'm i just so proud of Aaron for sharing this with us because I think it is true for a lot of people. And there's not a lot of space to discuss – there's a few things going on in Aaron's clip here. But first, there's not a lot of place to discuss – abusing your body right back. Yes, absolutely. Hers is one of our favorite, her her essay is one of the favorites we've had on the burn for me personally. I just think that that is so beautiful that she had the strength to share about drinking and dealing with the betrayal she felt from her body through drinking. And she describes it all really well. Just spot on. I think, too, that, you know, we didn't highlight this specifically as a hard truth, but I'll point it out now, is this idea, especially in the metastatic community, that that cancer is going to go on for a long time. Even in early stage, I don't know that our friends and family are prepared for 13, 14, 15 months 
of treatment. You know, you get all those casseroles, you get that influx yes. of, of well wishes. And then like Aaron said, as things progress, especially if you don't look as sick as someone is expecting you to look, then things do kind of go back to normal. They're pressing things, take their attention away from you and it can be so lonely. And so then all of a sudden you're just there Still dying, as Aaron said, but you're just there by yourself. Yeah, it's to cope the whole, it. but you don't look sick thing, that kind of betrayal. Your body on yeah. the outside looks fine, <laughs> but you don't look right. sick. <laughs> yeah. And having to explain that to people, you know? Right. I mean, because just like we expect the classic cancer patient to be emaciated, to be bald, you know, we have these ideas given to us of what a cancer patient looks like. And a lot of people in our community found that they gained weight, like you said, and we talked about going through treatment. Yeah. A lot of people are living with metastatic, which may their course of treatment may not include hair losing chemo or mastectomy or radiation. And so we really need to change our view of what we think a cancer patient looks like so that those cancer patients can get more comfortable in that post-cancer body. Yeah, it's it's it kind of falls in that category of invisible illness at a certain yeah. at a certain era in the metastatic experience. Exactly. Well, and I think too for people who are are, you know, maybe early stage, maybe even already reached no evidence of disease, the long-term effects are still there and largely invisible. I know one of the ones that I had to deal with was related to intimacy and and sex, you know, yeah. following following treatment. And that's not written all over my body as I go out in the world, but it is something I carry and something that is hard for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think one of the the hardest things that I've had to deal with that people don't see, I have really bad chemo brain. You know this. <laughs> and you're very patient with me on it. And and it's and it's I always wonder what people who didn't know me before think like, boy, she's really ditzy. <laughs> so, I think yeah. um yeah, we should have done a hard truth of chemo brain because it does affect, you know, going back to work and just day-to-day -day interactions. But one thing I think is, you know, we're recording this post, or I don't know if we are allowed to even say post-pandemic, but, you know, a lot of people now have lived through a pandemic that gave them some insight into yeah. what it is to live through a cancer experience. And chemo brain seems to be a little similar to... COVID brain, but we haven't heard anyone say that. Maybe I just coined that. Yeah. No. Yeah. Like, no? like just brain fog. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And it's I hard. It is hard. There's so many different little be betrayals that happen in, in the experience or waiting for the other shoe to drop feeling. Of exactly. Betrayal. Mm -hmm. What's next? Well, and it's just, it's, I think one of the things that was hard for me is that they call it breast cancer. It feels like it should just be local to my chest, like all all of it, the whole experience of it. Yes. <laughs> and I love that you're laughing because it's not, right? <laughs> it's a head-to-toe experience. Yeah. Well, like you said, it it affected um, your your thoughts on your sex life, your libido. Exactly. Exactly. Which is actually our last truth. Our big hard truth number six is sex and intimacy with a special shout out to dating. Like 
dating after you've been through a cancer experience is not necessarily something that our older counterparts are having to deal with. So we really yeah. wanted to shine shine a light on it, right? Yes. So yeah, so let me introduce our next clip. This is coming from Junie Boucher. Junie was a more recent guest of ours. She was episode 48 called Dating After a Mastectomy. And Junie was diagnosed with stage one invasive ductal carcinoma, of course, and she was 41 at the time. Here's what she had to say. The kind of case that indicates clothes would be coming up in the near future and with fervor. During the tornado of tangled limbs and strewn clothing that followed, I decided I would leave my bra on. That seemed safe. After a while, he gently asked, can I see? Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. And I should have said, you know, Junie was describing for us this return to dating mm -hmm. and also discovering in the process of that layers of where her comfort was with this new body. Yeah, I think she either lost a nipple or lost sensation in a nipple. So she only had one nipple that was a working erogenous zone for her. And I love how she shares that in that essay. What did, what did you think about that? Well, personally, it really resonates because of living asymmetrically. And so I have one natural breast with the nipple that I've always had there. And then one side that is completely flat without any sensation at all. And in my decision to have a single mastectomy, it was never brought to my attention that I I, I should think about my sex life, basically, when I thought about my mastectomy. I didn't realize until later, and, and one of the things that Junie brings up in her essay is that it is really nice to have sensation in a natural breast. Yeah. And so I don't know how much weight I would have given that at the time. I, I really had no inkling that breast cancer was going to disrupt my sex life the way that it did. And I might have yeah. disregarded that. But when Junie talks about all of the sensation that remains in her natural breast, it it really resonated with me. Yeah, me too, because I, I lost both my nipples. And like that was a part of my um, my sexual pleasure that I had to grieve, a loss of an erogenous zone that was important to me. It's not everybody's yeah. uh, erogenous zone, but it was an important one to me. And and to have to share that with a new partner too, like what's going on with your body. I've had to do do a lot of that. I I've done a lot of dating after after all the changes to my body. And I have to share that it was it's been surprising to me how much breast cancer stories I ran across in my dating life from men whose mothers had breast cancer, whose sister had breast cancer. I even <laughs> have <laughs> dated guys who their wives, their former partners had survived breast cancer. And I went on a date with one man who I was trying, you know, he was somebody I was pretty interested in. And so I felt like I needed to kind of start planting seeds of what was going on with my body to him. And I'm like, he's like, well, are those your natural breasts? I mean, he wasn't asking in a disrespectful way. And so I started explaining to him that I had had a deep flap reconstruction. He's all, oh, I know what that is. My former partner had that. And I was blown away. I'm like, wait, what? You know what a deep flap recon is? So I hope that gives some people out there some hope that we all come 
we all come to the table with something and a lot of other people have experience with women who have had breast cancer or having sex with women who have had breast cancer. So mm-hmm. I, I love that you shared that because we tend to insulate ourselves and think that we are, we're the only one who's experienced it. And especially when you want to date or do something else that kind of brings awareness to your body, you know, for people who aren't dating, it could just be wearing a swimsuit to the pool with your kids for the first time, you know, or having that locker room experience and feeling like you have to become the poster person for breast cancer is a lot, right? Yes. Yeah, a lot. And so to have your experience where someone says, oh, I know all about that. Oh my gosh, what a relief, right? Yeah, it it was. And I think it also, you know, you know, sex lives and intimacy after cancer, I've actually found that talking about my breast cancer things to people I'm dating, I've been able to have richer conversations about sex that I'm not sure I would have would be having had I not had breast cancer and you know just things about likes and dislikes what feels good what doesn't consent all these things so you know there are there are little bonuses from the experience hard-earned bonuses I guess but yeah there. hard-earned I like that well one of the ways that we deal with it and we've kind of dealt with it all through this special, these two episodes of our special is the dark humor. You know, (laughs) people have heard us laughing here and there. I mean, what else can you do, right? So we picked a couple of our favorite clips to kind of close out our special with some of these dark humor moments because it does feel like a hallmark of, of being diagnosed on the younger side. And maybe I just haven't met those salty grannies yet, but it does feel like we bring it and we bring it hard in this community. So let me set this up for you. This is Lori Palmerantz, and she was our episode 39 guest. The episode was called The Day My Nipple Fell Off. So Lori was diagnosed at 42. She had both ductal and lobular breast cancers. And here's what she had to say about that day. Dressed and ready for the day, I headed out. While we were all gone to work and to school and chemotherapy, our house cleaner came for her monthly visit. Coming home to a tidied house and a freshly made bed was a real treat. Until it dawned on me that my nipple had probably gone through the washing machine with the sheets or taken up residence in our vacuum bag. Things turned from terrifying to comic for me with this realization. I'm thinking that there aren't many housekeepers who have vacuumed up their clients' nipples. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, it's so perfect! I love it. It is. I actually know Lori, and I I need to ask her. Did you ever find evidence of that nipple later on? <laughs> <laughs> find a little jerky in the carpet? I don't know. <laughs> jerky in the carpet. Oh my god. Yeah. You know, one of the things I love about Lori's story too was. I think that, I don't know if it was Lori's story or another regarding a nipple sparing mastectomy, but I didn't know, number one, that nipple sparing was a thing. I don't remember that coming up in, you know. Me neither. Yeah, reviewing all those options. And number two, I certainly didn't know you could opt to save it and then it still die, you know, and Mm -hmm. not be 
not be a, a guarantee. I didn't know that. And so I was so grateful to people like Lori for also telling these stories because you need to know that going in, you know, what you might be on your hands and knees looking around the carpet for your Yeah, it's, it's a hard <laughs> truth, but any any little bit you can know can just help set you up better later emotionally. That's what I think. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And when it's done well, with humor, better. <laughs> humor has to be there, right? I mean, that's how we talk about these hard things. Like, I think if you if you weren't laughing about losing your nipple, you would be you would be crying and maybe you're doing all of it but yeah. the laughing is how we we heal it's how we relate to one another it's how we pick up the pieces and move on it's a damn good release <laughs> yes so we are going to close our special with one last uh humor moment and this comes again from Erin Weiss Erin has been on the podcast twice so it's fitting that she be in our special twice Aaron was, as I said a few moments ago, diagnosed de novo metastatic. That means metastatic right off the bat. And she has spent time writing and processing what it is to live with metastatic breast cancer and have it be a part of her life. And so in the wildfire writing workshops in Firestarters, Erin worked on this story where she imagined what it would be like if her house was observing this reality for her and if her metastatic breast cancer were like a house guest that just wouldn't leave. So here's Erin from episode 37, A Guest Room for MBC. So, he said, in a rich and soothing voice that sounds like Morgan Freeman, the pregnant silence hanging between us. Who is that? And he nodded ever so slightly towards MBC, who was at that moment drinking celery juice while yelling, not today, celery, not today. (laughs) (laughs) Not today. Yes. I just appreciate Uh, those little little injections of humor in the heavy. (laughs) Exactly. And also, like, how healing to make your cancer a character, you know, like what would it look like? What, how would it act in Erin's essay? It is a petulant teenager who is just wreaking havoc in that house. She does an excellent job of, of bringing that to life. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love her, her house having a soothing presence around her and the dark, the dark voice of Morgan Freeman there. Have you had any funny moments in your cancer experience? Any little quick funny story there? (laughs) Well, there was the day that my breast exploded, my prosthetic. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, your (laughs) prosthesis. Were you out in public? So it was a slow explosion that happened over the course of a week, and it wasn't, it's not like a, like a glitter bomb or something like that. It was like, it popped a leak and the <laughs> silicone just started <laughs> seeping out into my bra. And I wrapped the whole thing in my daughter's duct tape. She had the snowman duct tape. I don't know if, if your son got super into making everything out of duct tape oh, for a while, yes. but yes. yes. We had a lot of party <laughs> duct tape around. So I, I used that duct tape to mend this hole in my prosthetic, but it didn't work. And it just continued to be this goopy, terrible uh. mess in my bra. And I eventually <laughs> had to just throw it out. But yeah, 
Duct tape can yeah. fix anything for a while. My, for a little while. My funny <laughs> moment was apparently when I was coming out of an anesthesia from one of my breast revision surgeries, I told my plastic surgery how hot he was, how much I liked him. And he told me at my follow-up appointment... <laughs> That was so cringing, but it was funny. He was laughing about it, and it made me laugh. I'm like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I love that. You probably just made his day. I think that's perfect. Yeah. I wish there was a video of that. <laughs> uh, <ew>. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, Monica, it has been so fun reliving our first year of The Burn together and going through what we feel are the hard truths of, of living through a breast cancer experience. So I will just uh, summarize our hard truths. And we would love to hear from listeners on you know other truths that we missed, like I said, in probably in our first part, there are so many we could have gone into, and we just boiled it down to six that really resonated for us. But they were the mom thing, fertility and infertility, mental health, the struggle to find your place in the community, body wars, and sex and intimacy with a special shout out to, to dating. Those were what we felt were some of the differences in being diagnosed young versus someone who might be diagnosed at an at a later stage in life. Monica, any final thoughts from you? Just thanks for the platform and I'm grateful to be along for the ride and it's always an honor for me to um, work on everybody's stories in the production and um, it's been amazing. I've learned a lot. I never never thought I'd find myself in a podcast <laughs> involved in anything to do with that. So it's been great. Keep on, keep on, keep on keeping yeah. on. <laughs> and you too. But I love that too, that, that breast cancer opened doors. You didn't, you didn't know were there to yeah. be knocked on. So for sure. Yeah. Thanks for doing this work with me, Monica. Absolutely. I love it. To another year. To another year. Well, I'm April Stearns, and you've been listening to a very special episode of The Burn. The Burn is a production of Wildfire Magazine, where we share breast cancer stories from young women like you've never read or heard before. We also strive to inspire you to write your story like you've never written it before. Stay to the end to get your hands on a printable journal companion to this podcast so you can write your stories. Our producer is Bill Smith of Shoe Production, and our production assistant is... Monica Haro. Monica Haro. <laughs> Want more on the life-changing transformation to be had from telling your breast cancer stories? Visit wildfirecommunity.org to look through our now 38 issues in the Wildfire archives and to take a writing workshop with me. There's no place on the planet like a wildfire writing workshop, and I want you to experience it for yourself. Discover how to write your way back to yourself, write your way to reclaiming your body and your story. And don't forget to subscribe to The Burn and listen to it wherever you go. And as that last little parting gift to you, please hop over to wildfirecommunity.org slash the burn and pick up your printable journal companion to this podcast. I have combed through the last year of episodes and pulled out some of my favorite prompts and put them in a printable for you. So head to wildfirecommunity.org slash the burn and start writing today. Thanks so much. Take good care.